1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored uh, to join Dr. Rick DeVilliers, Dr. Rick de Villiers is a senior lecturer in the Department of English at the University of Free State in South Africa. He holds a PhD from Durham University in the UK and is the author of articles on modernism, South African literature, alternative assessment practices, and more. His first book, Elliot's, uh, Elliot and Beckett's Low Modernism, Humility and Humiliation, was published by Edinburgh University Press in 2021. And that's the book he's here today to talk to us about. Rick, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you very much for having me, Morteza. Rick, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you became um, a, a lecturer in English literature, and what particularly attracted you to this topic? We'll talk about low modernism as we go ahead, because I, for one, have no idea what it is. I, brief, I generally know what modernism is, but tell us a little bit about yourself and also how the book came along.
2: So, uh, I won't give you my, my whole uh, bio, um, and I think you've covered the relevant details. I've been in, in um, South Africa, back in South Africa, for five years now. Uh, I did my PhD at Durham University in the UK, which is where um, I worked on this project. The book grew out of my PhD, and I think what attracted me to the topic and to the authors I think one has to start with the authors, I've always had a a deep love of writers who are so much cleverer than I um, and from whom you can learn infinite things. Um, The writers who end up um, uh, not boring you, but you boring them, as Lionel Trilling said. So I think it was that. uh, I was deeply fascinated by Eliot and Beckett. And the thing that, that interested me was how many people, how many scholars had commented on the significance of humility and humiliation for both writers, but that this would at best get a page in in a monograph. Um, so it was certainly a lacuna in in the field. And that, w- that was curious to me. Um, and it also seemed like it was a point of overlap between two writers who generally are not thought of um, in, in the same terms, they both belong to modernism, but we have Eliot at the end of high modernism, whatever the term means, we have Beckett at the end of late modernism and uh, their, their consolidation um, has, has been difficult uh, and, and, and largely avoided. So I thought, let, let's think of this, this, this unifying topic and let's think of these two writers together.
1: Great, but let's start with, the, with some definitions. What, what do you mean by low modernism? Is it an extension of modernism? Is it a continuation of that? Is it a rejection of modernism? What do you mean by that term?
2: Yeah, I think I, I'm invoking a, a little bit of a play on high modernism, but without inverting what high modernism stands for. Normally, when we talk about high modernism, we think of um, the avant-garde and uh, an elitist tendency uh, iconoclasm, their rejection of popular culture. And these are perhaps stereotypes. Um, a lot of work is undone, this myth around high modernism. But my interest was in in lowliness. The word low in low modernism brings together the, the subtitle, humility and humiliation, because these words are conjoined through their etymology, um, humilis. So they've got the same root and further down to humans, to the earth. So they, they're deeply imbricated in each other. Um, and I was fascinated in, in, in working on the project to, I think, to bring together um, or to tease out a paradox, how Beckett and Eliot have jointly had a shaping influence on our modern mind, but in distinctly unmodern ways. And what I mean by that is that, um, When we think of Eliot, we think of certain um, unpalatable characteristics, um, particularly during his Christian phase. There is a marked anti-humanist streak. He pursues an agenda of extreme asceticism. Beckett, in his turn, um, poses problems in dealing with torture and cruelty that sometimes seems wanton, sometimes seems um, perpetrated for the sake of it. Uh, And I think this is nicely captured by the fact that in 1969, the Nobel Prize Committee had questions about whether or not to give the prize to Beckett because he didn't represent the spirit of the prize. He didn't represent uplift. So they both have this distinctly unmodern sensibility. Um, At the same time, they've had the shaping influence on our modern mind. And these massive cultural edifices have sprung up around Beckett and Elliot. Uh, I think one can even look at something like uh, the the pervasiveness of the fail better tattoo. that's of course uh, a, a famous Beckettian mantra which has become something of a self-help motto. Um, it doesn't reflect any of the original despair that Beckett infused into the into the term but reflects something of a you know chin up let's let's carry on. So there's there's a paradox there, and I'm interested in that paradox. And perhaps another way to explain the project of low modernism is to see it as the conjunction of two subtraction stories. Um, subtraction stories is a term used by Charles Taylor, the philosopher Charles Taylor, and he, he defines it as a, a story we tell ourselves, but from which we remove certain limiting factors, certain inhibitions. And that's certainly true when we look at the subtraction story of humility. We like to think of humility as a positive virtue, something that we like to see in other people, um, something that can be enabling. But we don't like to bring it into contact with humiliation. We've subtracted humiliation from it, which um, has happened gradually over history. The other subtraction story is, I think, a, a more um, positive move that's reflected in modernist studies broadly. It's to not think of high modernism as virulent, as strong, as potent, but rather to shed some light on the vulnerability, the cracks, the shame, the embarrassment and ultimately the hum- humiliation. So, Um, weak modernism has emerged as a field and and I bring these two subtraction stories together to complement and supplement each other in in pursuing my project of low modernism
1: Uh, That that was an interesting concept I hadn't heard it before, subtraction stories, so you've given me something to check after the interview and when you were talking about Beckett and uh, Nobel Prize I was reminded of that weird silent interview he he had, I'm not sure if it was after the after he was given the prize because it was this reporter. I don't know if you're familiar. Have you seen that? Uh, mm-hmm. no. okay. it's, I think it's called interview, silent interview or something like that. If you Google it, it will come up. So this yeah, interview right. is asking it's questions. John it's just, yeah, he's just standing like a ghost, saying nothing, <laughs> quite still and motionless. Anyway, uh, when we think of Elliot, you know, the other name that comes to our mind is automatically Beckett, right? How, how did you put this two together in within your theoretical framework? How did you square them together in this project?
2: Yeah, they're not easy bedfellows, are they? Um, n- not not within modern studies, but not in their own time either. Uh, they had l- l- very limited contact, uh, if we can even call it that. Uh, Beckett submitted a review to the Criterion, which Eliot Ed was, was editing, of course. In the 1930s, Elliot didn't like it very much um, and never asked Beckett for another review. Uh, Beckett's admiration of Elliot was grudging at best. He gets a few nods here and there in some of the, the critical prose, um, but Beckett generally thinks of Elliot as professorial. And at one point, he writes in a letter that T. Elliot is toilet, spelled backwards. So not not the best of bedfellows. Um, which makes it interesting for me to bring them together, because ultimately this is not a comparative study, it's a complementary study. i I develop um, my framework in according to three categories: the affective, the ethical, and the aesthetic, and i I look at almost meeting points between the authors. how How do they, for instance, handle embarrassment as a modality of humiliation? unto humility what are the ethical concerns that they they raise when when someone either um, approaches humiliation the humiliation of others or when they use humility as a kind of self promotion and ultimately how is a text humbled Um, and it's through the the development of this schema that i bring Elliot and beckett together but i always keep them separate it's not comparative Uh, these are these are points of contact
1: uh, let's talk a little bit about the book, uh, the, the concepts that you have discussed in the book, humiliation and humility. So, uh, can you talk about that? Because, you know, there's this long list of other words or let's say concepts that are sort of similar, abjection, shame, embarrassment. So what, w- what is this fascination with, uh, with Humiliation.
2: Yeah, I think um, you touch on something interesting there is that humiliation is and seems to be the thing that we are more drawn to. Humility is kind of unsexy. Um, Perhaps not if you look at recent publications, because we have um, large collected volumes that look at humility as a virtue. But this is largely cordoned off to virtue ethics, to philosophy. Um, And what I do in the book in order to show what relation there is between humility and humiliation is to give a a threefold schema of um, thinking about humility. And it's only in the third schema that humiliation becomes a significant component. So to start, we have something like the Aristotelian notion of humility. But even to call it that is, is a misnomer because humility was largely foreign to the ancients. Uh, Classical philosophers did not really use the word humility, and they certainly meant it in a very different way. So when we look at Aristotle, he comes up with the magnanimous man, and magnanimous man is actually kind of a revolting person. Uh, The Magnanimous man is a person who thinks highly of of themselves because they should. Um, They have great talents. They have great privilege. And they recognize that privilege and that talent so as to contribute to society. In Aristotle's conception, the magnanimous man confers benefits, but he does not receive them. That would be beneath his station. Now, this has been absorbed in current virtue ethics under the rubric of modesty rather than humility. And virtue ethicists have made the case that in order for us to be at all socially useful, we can't underplay our achievements we've got to we've got to know where we are strong and use those strengths to 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 better our society Um, and that's that more or less in a nutshell the the Aristotelian notion um, of humility with the virtue ethics notion of humility the second category would be um, humanistic or democratic humility this isn't so much evaluative Personally, as it is almost species-wide, so uh, a humanistic humility would recognise that we are all fallible. We all have limitations, and these limitations should not inhibit us. They should spur us to growth, spur us to try and be better. And it makes sense then that this this trend is discernible, particularly in legal studies, um, constitutional writings. Uh, uh, social work where the emphasis certainly is not on humiliation and if there is any emphasis on our shortcomings it's to overcome them, to make more compassionate laws, to be um, to be more compassionate to others. Then we get to the, the schema that I explore throughout the book and it should be said that these are not obviously the only three schemas but they give us um, again Uh, points of comparison to see how Eliot and Man Beckett use humility and humiliation. So the third schema is Christian humility. And there is overlap with both the Aristotelian and the democratic account of humility. The Aristotelian element is there in a personal reflection. But where an Aristotelian humble person might think of what they've done and where they can apply themselves, the evaluative, personal evaluative, framework in Christian humility is to recognize your sinfulness, your, your personal fallibility. The democratic component might be seen in, in recognizing species-wide fallibility that we are all limited in some way. But again, the point is not upward striving. A question that emerges for theologians of humility is how, how is it shown? How is it embodied? And before a certain moment in time, particularly before the 18th century, Humiliation is the image of humility. It's the way in which we manifest our humility. And this is not a once-off process. Humility, as Elliot famously said, is endless. So the humiliations that we've got to submit ourselves to should be continuous in order for us to be humble. Because humility, of course, cannot be summited. It can't be achieved. As soon as you say, I am humble, you are no longer humble, of course. So that paradox is, is very important to the Christian conception of humility, that humiliation is a, is a key component in bringing it about. Um, but when I say humiliation is key in bringing it about, I mean it as an intrapersonal imperative inside the self, not interpersonal. Um, that, that definition of humiliation as something we do to others to shame them, to embarrass them, to hurt them that is a more modern conception of it and it is something that it both elliott and beckett are obviously distinctly opposed to their interest is more in a kind of ascetic practice how do i lessen myself what what are the practical means the humiliations by which i can achieve humility
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe
1: Uh, and how do you, let's say, define or distinguish this idea of, you, you, you talk about it in the first two chapters, the idea of embarrassment in Beckett and Eliot?
2: Yeah, so to, to think about the embarrassment um, of each requires a little bit of biography. In Eliot's case, he grows up in a very conservative milieu in America under um, in a Unitarian household. And it's well known that Eliot soon rejects the religion of his family because he sees it as something that um, projects the the desire to be seen to be doing the right thing rather than doing the right thing. Um, Its values are contingent. Its values are social. It's concerned with saving face. And what I explore in, in the chapter on Eliot's embarrassment is how quickly, 10 years before his conversion to Christianity, his formal conversion, He's already drawn to notions of theological shame, so sin. He's already interested in absolutes, in damnation, in in hell, um, and he's not interested in perception, social, socially contingent values. So I, I trace this through a, a relatively neglected piece of writing, "Eel Drop and Appleplex." It's its only short story. Not a lot has been written about it. And yet, it contains, um, I think, the seeds of that um, humanist rejection that we'll we'll see Eliot um, debating in the 1930s. So it's a key text for for the moral sensibility that he develops. In Beckett's case, um, the biography is inseparable from the writing at that time. The early stages, we know that Beckett is a highly embarrassable person in his in his youth. Um, And it's so bad for him that he tries really to identify the cause of his embarrassability by reading up in contemporary psychology. So we've got this wealth of notebooks um, uh, and scribbles that tell us that Beckett, um, you know, went, went through lists of symptoms to see why it was that he reddened to the rotten roots of his hair when, um, when his, he was caught out somehow or when he, when, he, when he felt that he was exposed. What I'm interested in is how this exposure is projected into the early work, um, particularly More Pricks Than Kicks, his first collection of short stories, which is an embarrassing publication in itself because it's really the workshopping, the rewriting of his first novel, Dream Affair to Middling Woman, that never saw the light of day. So Beckett had to contend with this failure but embarrassment is is interesting in Beckett because embarrassment always is really the retention of power of agency it's a it's an emotion that we experience when we lose that power and agency but it also expresses the desire to retain it we want to save face and what I think is particularly fascinating about Beckett's development is that he graduates from this concern with with saving face with maintaining the control to becoming a writer who, who relishes in vulnerability, a writer who, who explores the, um, the, the deepest exposures of humanity and of self. And we find that, I think, nicely illustrated in that moment at the end of Waiting for Godot, where Estragon's pants fall down. Um, he, he, he doesn't notice it, and Vladimir tells him, your pants are falling down, he says, true. And the poignancy of that scene is not, has got nothing to do with embarrassment in an obvious way. He's not concerned with picking up his pants so that he's not exposed. We must remember that he's removed his, his rope belt to assess its viability as a suicide weapon. He's going to hang himself. And that is a measure against existential embarrassment, against waiting for someone who never shows up, waiting on answers that, that are never given, Going through the same repetitive motions without any change.
1: And um, when, when people talk about ideas like or concepts like virtue, first thing, uh, virtue or humility, first thing that comes to their mind is this religious connotation of that. And when you talk about these authors, how do you, one cannot help but think of hagiographies, you know, uh, how do you maintain that critical distance? Between your authors, the authors that you're discussing, and people like Saint Tom or Saint Sam,
2: mm-hmm. yes, because there's a there's a very uh, sort of established narrative about, about both. Um, in Eliot's case, of course, his, his sainthood um, is more uh, more squarely placed within quotation marks because he came across as a very proud man. Um, one can even reverse his claim about Byron to say it was—it's not clear whether Eliot was a humble man or a man who liked to pose as a humble man, um, because he was so strident in his insistence on on Christian virtues, particularly on humility. And someone like Geoffrey Hill, for instance, takes him to task for that. He says, "How are we to, supposed to take those 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 imperatives in Four Quartets telling us to kneel and to bow down?" Um, this doesn't really speak of humility. In Beckett's case, um, I think the sainthood is perhaps um, more, is, is, is less troubled, at least, right? We all know the stories about Beckett's generosity towards friends and towards other writers, whether he provided financial assistance or whether he donated manuscripts or whether he just gave advice. He was a tirelessly selfless person. And that's, that, those are, those are, warning flags for someone working on a project like this. Um, I had to contend with the fact that these narratives exist and one can easily be seduced by them to see humility in everything. So I think a a healthy dose of skepticism is required to identify the performances of humility. And and when I use that term, I again refer to the fact that, uh, that, that that suspicion that arises around humility, that as soon as you assert yourself as humble. You aren't humble anymore. It's a performance. It's a gesture. It's it's a mere show. At the same time, the the term is meant to be understood practically. How is humility performed? How is it how is it brought about? And I think I address these questions um, head on in the latter chapters, the last two chapters, where I look at the aesthetics of humility. And here I'm. I want to ask the question: How does a text? humble itself. I turn to Eliot's East Coker um, in the fifth chapter, um, and particularly that phrase, humility Mm -hmm. is endless, and I ask what exactly does it mean for humility to be endless in the context of um, a magnificent work of art that is also kind of aware of its own magnificence. And here I'm interested in tracing how Yeats emerges as a rebuking voice throughout four quartets, but particularly in East Coker, how Eliot consciously and deliberately invokes the spirit and and, and the voice of Yeats, Yeats, Yeats as a kind of self-laceration, as a means of humbling. In Beckett's case, um, I look at how it is, the text that that is published in English in 1964. And this is a a very important moment um, for Beckett to be writing anything because the Beckett industry is so huge at this point. Books have been written about um, uh, Beckett. Theses have been written about him. Hundreds of articles have been written. And he's aware of this. He's aware of his own fame. And the question that comes up for him is how do I not just ride on my fame. This really is a question that a lot of artists ask themselves, a lot of writers. Um, it's what Theodore Adorno and Edward Said refer to as late style. This getting irritated with the thing on which your reputation is is built. And I trace that irritation in Beckett's use of his earlier works in our, how it is, how he cannibalizes them, but not to feed the Beckett industry. It does that, of course, you can't avoid doing that but to ironize the project that he's involved in. So for both Elliot and Beckett, that, that, that process of irony is important. They adopt what Paul DeMann calls also critique, this, this ironic distance to yourself so that you can ultimately lower yourself. And that is how I think I resist the sainthood of either to, to show their, their clear efforts at humili, humiliating themselves and how they are often successful at doing that.
1: Uh, Rick, before we end this conversation, is there any other work uh, that you're currently, any other project you're currently working on?
2: There are two projects I'm working on, um, both in, in, in the larval stage. Um, the, the first is an edited collection, which flows out of those first two chapters on embarrassment. Um, I'm, I'm collecting a number of essays on embarrassment in modernism. Which is a really neglected affect emotion uh, because we like to think of high modernism in relation to high emotions, shame. But embarrassment is a kind of embarrassing emotion to think about. But there are also sort of political dimensions to that. What is the what is the colonial heritage of modernism? How does it embarrass the the pristine reputation of modernism? Um, how does modernism build up? modes that embarrass readers um is difficulty another word for embarrassment really when we when we're confronted with texts like ulysses or the wasteland or, or finnegan's wake um is there difficulty not just a kind of tool to embarrass the reader so that that's one project i'm working on the second also flows from my work on humility and humiliation it's called provisionally wretched specters. Um, But here I turn my gaze towards contemporary South African writing. And I'm interested in the figure of the very eloquent, the well-spoken, the Vatic poor person, the person on the street, the beggar, who is used in a lot of contemporary South African writing to express social concerns, but to express them in an uncannily eloquent way. Um, And I tie this to the tradition that... Emson, William Emson identifies in some versions of pastoral, where he says how funny a, a tradition the pastoral really is where it uses shepherds and peasants to speak high thoughts and great things to reflect what's great in us and yet to seem completely oblivious to the material reality that makes that person poor. So I'm interested in, in that paradox in South African writing of the last 10 or 20 years. And those are the two projects I'm working on.
1: Fascinating. Uh and hopefully we'll be able to talk to you again soon on New Books Network about uh, your, your future work.
2: Ortezo, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
1: Okay. Thank you for your time.